How do the best data scientists in the world master their data sets, train their models, and climb the data science ladder? Let's ask them. My name's Jeremy, and this is the Towards Data Science Podcast. You can get access to the very latest research. We also have to make sure that we're constantly revisiting our foundations and justifying why we're using the methods we are. At that time, I said, and I want people to hear this, that you have worth and you have skills and there's someone who needs that somewhere. Hello, hello, interneters. Welcome to the Towards Data Science Podcast. My name is Jeremy, and I'm on the team over at the Sharpest Minds Data Science Mentorship Program. And today's episode is all about privacy. We're talking to Matthew Stewart, a prolific blogger and Harvard PhD student, about his research and some of his popular writing on the topic of data privacy. We'll be discussing what data privacy is and how it's quantified, in addition to getting his take on the state of academic research and the value of grad school. So Matt, thanks so much for joining us for the podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, so you're a PhD student at Harvard, uh, where you're working on drone-based chemical sensing systems, and you're also a prolific blogger. In fact, a lot of your blog posts have been published on Towards Data Science. So in, in some sense, we're, we're dog-fooding a little bit here, which uh, is something I'm really excited about. You're, you've also done some consulting work on machine learning projects for companies as well. But before we dig into any of that, maybe we can just start by getting a little bit of information about what got you into machine learning in the first place. So what made you decide to jump into the field? How did you how did you get here? It's I kind of got here in a roundabout way. So I was I was actually doing um a study abroad in Singapore and uh I applied for I was applying for PhDs instead of jobs and I was just emailing professors uh in environmental science uh, around the US and I found this guy who was doing uh drone-based systems and he said he wanted to hire an engineer. Uh luckily I got in. And then once I started doing classes there, I took some data science classes because environmental science is very much uh, heavily linked with um, data science because we use a lot of data for modeling, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and then, yeah, I just took a class and thought it was super interesting and then started blogging and then people actually started to read the blogs. Um, and then as I took more and more classes, uh, now I'm doing a secondary field in, in data science. And it's, it's just very helpful in terms of research to, to work on all these different areas, I guess. You mentioned starting in from the, the um, environmental sciences angle and the interplay between environmental science and data science. Can you give us a, a bit of an idea of what types of data science uh, modeling tasks are involved in solving environmental science problems typically? I guess there's a pretty broad range, right? Uh, yeah, definitely. There's a lot. Um, so I'd say the two main branches in environmental science are there's the experimentalists, who are the guys who like build the devices. They they get you the sensors that can get you data. Uh, and then you have the modelers who uh, take the data that we use and they use it to plug into uh, things like atmospheric models, models of the ocean. Those are the things that um, people like the IPCC use to make predictions about the future. And in particular, would we be looking at climate change predictions? Would that be sort of fall into that category? Yeah, things like uh, air pollution. So, so one of the, the biggest things people uh, study at the moment is like, um, we have, there's like indoor air pollution. So for example, in your home, how do pollutants travel around? And then also city level, uh, but also you have global climate models. Uh, yeah, looking at climate change, um, looking at the spread of, of pollutants in the ocean, for example, 
we in my lab we specifically look at uh, the emissions of trees uh, because trees emit a lot of chemicals the the most important of which is called isoprene uh, and it's the the world's dominant uh, voc so it's like a carbon-based chemical uh, which is released by plants and this uh, evolves in the atmosphere to form aerosols which are like tiny particles which eventually will act as the nuclei for clouds so we, we oh cool basically develop chemical sensors that are able to measure um, these kind of processes so that we can uh, infer like chemical mechanisms and things so it's a very different area to what most data scientists would be uh, uh, exposed to actually i think this is one of those examples as well for people listening especially if you're looking to, to break into data science it's um it's often the case that you get into data science through some other field like this where you you develop deep subject matter expertise and then you find some niche use case for uh, you know a machine learning model or, or something like that um it's it's interesting to see this path the alternative of course being starting off becoming a generalist um looking at sort of a, a broader modeling tool set or, or visualization tool set to become an analyst or data scientist this is sort of very much the opposite of that. You're coming from it uh, from a, a, a sort of um, uh, environmental science background, and you happen to use it because it's useful. Um, how how did you come to decide to like double down on this and, and actually do a PhD? Uh, in, in knowing that you were going in the actually, did you know that you were going to do the the whole data science thing that you were going to go into into machine learning through your grad studies at that point? Oh, no, not, not at all. So my, my undergraduate was in mechanical engineering and, you know, I'd done some coding. Uh, I, did, I did a thesis where I made a, a software program that did uh, pipe flow simulations. Um, but if, if you told me now that I was going to be doing this, I would, I would not believe you, you know, five yeah. years ago. <laughs> yeah, well, it's interesting because like, I've talked to a lot of people who are doing, let's say, machine learning uh, PhDs or, you know, data science PhDs, something like that. Um, and, and these degrees are incredibly competitive. They are difficult to get into. In fact, to the point where, you know, sometimes I'll speak to folks who'll say they're in a master's program and to get into the master's program, you needed to have something ridiculous like two publications at least in like a top tier journal or conference like NIPS um, or NeurIPS rather, uh, you know, just to be able to start your master's. Whereas that might've been like, what you'd have at the end of a PhD not too long ago. Um, I, w I wonder if this kind of strategy of, of going in through some sort of some alternative area like environmental science or chemistry or physics, and then kind of adding a data science component to that might be a, a more plausible or easier way to get in. I mean, do you have a sense for that? What, what would you recommend if somebody's dead set on a PhD? I really don't know, actually. Um, I would say a lot of what happens, uh, from people I know, at least this is just anecdotal, uh, but they they seem to do well when they, they start as a master's and then they, they find a professor who studies something they're particularly interested in. Uh, and they maybe do a project with them, like a capstone project or something. Uh, and then that kind of evolves into a, into a PhD project. But naturally there's less, there's less PhDs than there are masters. So, you know, you're, it's a, like a dog eat dog world. You've got to really fight for it if you want to, if you want to do that. Would you, would you recommend that people do a PhD if they're looking to get into data science? I know you've done some industry work too, so you'll have some sense of how the, the degree maps onto the jobs. Yeah, I would say the, the industry world is very different to the, to the academic world. Um, you know, I, I, I've seen uh, people like other, other bloggers and they, they uh, show things that they've done in industry. And then when I, when I look at papers, it's very much like, so some of the ideas seem very wacky and, you know, when you have deep learning projects that they're, they're very much like 
low level. Um, and for example, in Harvard, there's not even a class where they teach you in depth how to use stuff like PyTorch or TensorFlow. You know, they use uh, Keras. I think there might be a class at MIT where they teach you specifically how to use these kind of low level frameworks. Um, but you know, if that's like the, the baseline for getting into academia, then then the master's program doesn't even get you to that level. So it's yeah, it's a pretty tough um, area to break into. That raises a secondary question. I mean, you might have taken some MOOCs or some online courses or done Kaggle competitions, read blog posts, that sort of thing. Do you get the sense that on the education side of things, that is the degree itself is is helping, or is it more useful as a signal to employers as opposed to an, an actual kind of pedagogical experience? I would say that it's it's definitely been helpful for me. Um, it's given me kind of a platform upon which to, to build upon. And it's very general, you know, when you have these university classes, they teach you, they're not trying to teach you how to do your job. Mm -hmm. uh, when you graduate, they're trying to give you the skills so that you can go away and teach yourself whatever you need to know. And also uh, just give you like a general feel for the field. Um, so in, in Harvard, I think there's like 16 classes you have to take for the, the data science masters. It, it's, it's 12 or 16. Uh, and there's only two of them, which are actual like data science techniques. So things like uh, neural networks, um, boosting algorithms, uh, splining, smoothing, those kind of things. The rest of the classes are all things like, oh, this is how you handle time series data. This is how you uh, handle data privacy. This is how you, like, here's a messy data set, do a project where you analyze it. And it's, it's very much, I don't know, you, you can kind of, uh, pick a niche that you want to look into that you're interested in that you might then go to in the future. But I would say if, if you know what you want to do, then it's better just to kind of get a feel, read papers. Um, maybe there's a, a MOOC that's specific for your topic. For example, if you want to do biotechnology, I would not say that doing a data science master's would be particularly helpful. Maybe there's like a genomics class online, which has more useful information. Well, it makes perfect sense. I mean, the, the raw tooling as well in data science that, that's useful for a particular application is uh, so different from field to field too. Like, I mean, you know, you're talking about courses on deep learning and it's like, it's actually quite rare that deep learning is going to be the optimal solution for any given problem. It's, you know, more often interpretable models, like tree-based models, certainly in industry tend to get used a lot more. Um, so, I mean, kind of, kind of makes sense that there'd be a little bit of a scattershot approach in terms of the, the teaching. Um, Great. Well, so maybe one thing that we can talk about too is I, I know that um, you've written a lot of blog posts. One of them that really caught my eye was a blog post you wrote on the topic of data privacy. And the reason I think this is especially interesting, it's, it's sort of, it's one of those emerging areas that people are going to be paying more and more attention to in, uh, in the post Cambridge Analytical world, for example. So most people have a certain picture of what data privacy involves, but the privacy rabbit hole is actually pretty deep and your blog post goes into it in some detail. Can you introduce the idea of data privacy and, and why it's so important? Yeah, so that, that article you're refer, referring to is, is very long. Um, and it's, it's kind of based on uh, some class material that, that I've, um, I've got. But, but, but essentially, some of, the, some of the stories I heard in the class were very concerning. You know, uh, I, I don't know how much uh, people will know about this, but uh, the first story I introduce um, is about an app called Strava, which is like a running app. And at one point they released some, some data visualization map. And it turns out it has, I think, 3 trillion data points on it or something. Uh, but if you look at the map, it looks fairly innocent to start with. And then when you look at 
different regions, you find that there's very strange activity going on in, in areas like Afghanistan. Uh, and then when you look at the users that are in Afghanistan, it's all military users and they're all US military. Mm. Uh, so essentially what the, the, the app has produced in the data visualization map is a map of three uh, bases. Yeah. Some of them in like Djibouti, Syria, Afghanistan. Um, so sometimes it's, it's very like, you know, if, if I was working for Strava, I probably would not have thought that that was a possibility of disclosing when I released that data set. Um, so sometimes it's, it's very difficult to, to work out when you're going to violate someone's privacy. Uh, other times it's way more obvious. So uh, at Harvard, we have a lot of people who are very much on the forefront of this, this kind of technology. Uh, there's a lady called Latanya Sweeney who became famous because she uh, took some some healthcare data and she was able to link it with public voter record, and she was basically able to find out every disease that individuals might ha have. Oh my had. god! Uh, yeah, and she got the zip code of the uh, governor of Massachusetts uh, at the time. His name's William Weld, and she <laughs> basically sent him to his uh, address a letter saying. I was able to do this. You told us this was not possible. Um, I now know like your medical conditions and stuff. And um, when she tried, she tried to publish this work in a in a journal, and she got rejected. I think twenty times because they were saying, "Well, this is yeah. well, it's very unethical to start with, but also um, you haven't presented a solution for how we should deal with this. So you know, if you if you release this, then there's going to be a public outcry. Uh, so yeah, this just shows you the the importance of why you need data privacy in um, in data sets because otherwise very personal things about your yourself can be disclosed uh, in this case it was his his medical conditions what are some of the strategies then that people can use in data privacy because obviously it's a it's a somewhat mature field or it's not brand new but what are some of the strategies people use to anonymize to privatize data sets to avoid these kinds of problems the techniques that uh, typically people use are for individual specific data. So when I say that, I mean, if it's about a particular person or a, it can also be businesses in some cases, but basically any individual entity. Once, well, one of the things you can do is, uh, is called K-anonymity. So we have another professor at Harvard, her name's Cynthia Dwork. She, she made differential privacy. So this is actually, Latanya Sweeney invented K-anonymity. And what it says is if you look at the data set, in a data set, you have different degrees of data. The first one is a direct identifier. So this, if someone knows this, they know direct information about you. So this is something like a telephone number or an email address, uh, and it directly identifies you. You know, I, could, I can go and send an email or a, a voicemail to you if I know that. And then there's things called quasi-identifiers. So uh, let's say if, if I know your gender and I know your zip code and I know your age, you can identify 87% of the US population if you know those three variables. Wow. Uh, which is kind of alarming uh, because the only ones that you can't tell is if, you're, if you live in a big city because there's lots of people in a specific zip code. Uh, and if you know that information, you can obviously find out personal details about someone. So what Latanya Sweeney presented in this, in this K-anonymity is she said, even if you have uh, these quasi-identifiers, so let's say you, you have your zip code, your gender, and your age, for every possible um, permutation of that, there has to be at least K individuals that satisfy that criteria. So it's almost like a filter that you impose on top of your data set to ensure that there's enough 
kind of duplication of rows to make each row hard to identify on its own if you have some of the corresponding information? Am I, am I getting the spirit right? Yeah, so you can't identify an individual from uh, the set of quasi-identifiers. Within the same data set? Within the same data set. So it's very much like a post hoc, I have the data, um, how do I, if I, when I'm going to release this to the public, how do I ensure that no one's going to be able to, to find an individual from that data set? Okay, so the idea here is I get my data set, I look at it, and I, through some approach, which I'm guessing there's a strategy for this, but I look to see if I can expect to confuse every individual in my data set with at least K other individuals in the data set based on the information I have about them. Is that roughly accurate? Yeah. Um, you know, it, it sounds very nice to start with, and then when you actually try and implement it, it's it's a complete nightmare because the higher the level of K you go to, the, the more your data becomes useless. Um, it means you have to either remove rows, so you have to remove your direct identifiers, um, obviously, because otherwise people can just, you know, text you or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and then the quasi-identifiers, you have to kind of obfuscate them in some way. And there's several ways of doing this. You can uh, use generalization where you, instead of having an age, for example, you would put someone in an age category. So like you're between 20, 25, 25, 30, instead of being I'm 25. Right. And uh, yeah, and then also uh, you can do uh, suppression, so you can get rid of uh, specific areas. So let's say you, you like gender is not very useful, or you want to get rid of it because it's you know causing issues. Uh, so you can just delete that category. Again, you're losing information, so your data becomes less useful. Uh, if you want to put this into a, a neural network, maybe that was a very important parameter to have the male versus female. Right. Um, so you, you're. As you progressively increase your privacy, you you decrease your utility, and there's some kind of trade-off there. And it's like uh, the, the the difficulty is what's the acceptable level of privacy with an acceptable level level of uh, utility loss. So, if the idea is that we want one individual to be confusable with at least k other individuals in the data set, how do we measure that confusability? If if that's a, even a term we can use here. At, at a like, there has to be presumably a certain level of like ambiguity beyond which you say, okay, you know, these are these can be confused with one another, so we're fine. There's some level of privacy here. What are some of the the measures of that again confusability? I'm sure there's a better word. So for this is one of the criticisms of of K anonymity is it it doesn't really have that um, variable in it. The, the only variable you have to play with is is the value of K. So let's say your K is five, that means for every single uh, subset of these quasi-identifiers, of which you could have many, if you have a data set which has you know, a thousand features in it, you have to make sure that every single possible permutation of those quasi-identifiers has at least five people um, in them. And that can either mean you delete people from the data set, which obviously was going to bias the data set, or you have to add synthetic people based on some kind of Joint distribution, right. um, and that can really screw up the data set. You know, um, there's a in one of the classes I use uh, an edX data set, and you find that if you if you use this technique of removing people that don't fit into your value of k, you actually bias the data set towards people that didn't finish the class. So edX is like an online portal, and if uh, you yeah. know the people who who were the outliers are generally the ones that performed best, and then if you're removing them, then you're biasing your, your results towards people failing classes. Uh, so yeah, and then you and then you obviously 
you don't have a good picture of what the actual data set was, was showing you. Right. So that's this utility privacy trade-off um, in action. Okay. And so, so this is strategy number one for dealing with privacy. You, you mentioned a couple others in the blog post. So, so what's the one people use when key anonymity fails? Uh, yeah, so people were not very enthused about K-anonymity. So um, another one was invented called L-diversity. And the idea behind this is that it protects against this, uh, one of these ideas called a, a homogeneity attack. So a homogeneity attack is if you have your K is three, for example, and it's a medical data set, and let's say everybody in that, in that K is three category has um, HIV, and then someone finds that category and they know that you are in, you are one of those three people. If all those three people have, you know, something horrible like HIV, or even if it's not that, but it's something else horrible, they know that you have one of those. Um, so it's not great. So it doesn't even matter if they can pin it down to a specific individual. If like all three people in this, in this cluster of K have some condition that they'd rather not reveal than like the cat's out of the bag, even if you haven't pinned it down to, to which individuals which. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the L-diversity is kind of a, a further condition on top of the K-anonymity where you say, not only do I have to have three people in this subset, but they have to have L number of, of uh, results in that category as well. So mm. if it's three and your K is three, it means you can't just have all of them with HIV. There has to be someone with HIV. Maybe someone's got a cough. Maybe someone has... Uh, I don't know, asthma or something. So it, it's kind of obfuscating it more to prevent against this, this specific time, type of attack. But both of these are, are still have the problem of they're, they're like post-processing, so they're not built into the algorithm itself. Um, so, so the real revolution came when uh, basically someone invented differential privacy, and the idea of that is that the uh, the privacy is kind of built into the analysis, not into the, the data output itself. And if you do that, you can actually quantify the privacy loss through this parameter that they call the, the privacy parameter. And this is much more useful because, well, in, in the other data sets, you can't measure the loss. Um, but in this one, you can kind of obfuscate it as much as you need to without losing too much information. The difficulty comes when you say how much do I, like, am I willing to lose? And that's very much like a, I guess, a, a public policy question more than anything, yeah, at that point, and an ethical. Right, and, and actually maybe that's something we can dive into as well. I think one of the problems as we start looking at public policy with respect to machine learning is the difficulty of educating the public in terms of what these metrics are and what people would even, even in a perfect democracy, what people would even be voting for. It's not clear what a privacy KPI of, of like 0.5 would even mean. And, and so on the differential privacy side of things, actually, can you walk us through differential privacy for, for starters? Like, how does it work, roughly speaking? Uh, sure. Yeah. So, so um, for anyone in, in like that knows anything about cryptography, we always have um, these things called bad actors. And you assume that you're communicating with somebody and there's a bad actor trying to steal all your information. So it's like a third party who's like listening into the, the communication channel. So they, um, researchers, they try to develop a system that's kind of like this for, for data sets. But the issue with the data set is the bad actor is the person who has, who, who like has access to the communication channel. So you can't encrypt mm -hmm. a data set. Um, so, so they had to come up with a new technique where the, the user is now the adversary 
you know, the user's trying to screw with this system and they're trying to make variables get flipped or they're trying to find out information about individuals. Um, and it's actually pretty easy. Um, even, you know, you can do very intelligent things uh, where you say, oh, you can't make like very specific queries about an individual, but then you can do something called a differencing attack where you say, um, select every individual that has cancer. And then you say, select every individual that has cancer that's name isn't John, whatever. And then you've got information about that one individual by doing this on like a, on a full data, uh, database. So um, yeah, so the idea of differential privacy is if you ask the, the database for a, uh, an answer to a question, it will give you the answer, but what it will do is it will add some noise to that, that answer. And the way it adds the noise to the to the answer, uh, it does it in a way where it won't increase the um, the error in the data set by too much, but it will do it enough that you can't tell whether that person was present in the data set or not. So when I say that, I mean, if there's 10,000 people in the data set, it will add noise to represent one out of 10,000 people in the data set. Right. And so, and, and that's, I guess, that privacy threshold, right? I mean, every time you, you uh, make a query on this, on this database, presumably you get back an answer that is slightly wrong, uh, where the noise has been added. And the amount of noise, like the more noise you add, the more guarantee there is that some, kind of, some level of privacy will be afforded. And the, the le but the less noise you add, the more accurate your predictions will be, or the, be the better the signal, I guess, in, in the data. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, um, yeah, that's very true. So, so this privacy parameter that we're talking about, um, the idea is that you have two data sets that vary only by one one row in the data set, one row, uh, and that row is a person. And the idea is this 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 uh, epsilon value, this privacy parameter, tells you how much privacy loss you get from removing that that one person from the data set. And if it's zero, you have the data sets are the same. So that you, you learn absolutely nothing from having that person in the data set. Um, so so it's, very, it's not very useful. If you have uh, kind of a, a larger privacy parameter, the difference between the data sets is, is small. So there's definitely something added by that person. But the point is that you can quantify that difference with the privacy parameter. So the larger the parameter is, the more um, information that person gives you about the data set. Right. And the idea is you want to have a minimum value of that parameter such that um, an individual adversary can't learn anything about the specific individual from having both of those data sets. Right. So I guess we could imagine ourselves in a world where um, these, these privacy parameters are themselves regulated in some meaningful sense. I, I wonder how far along things are um, on that level, actually, with GDPR and other regulations like that coming around the corner, it uh, it might be it might be in the future for us. If it's not here already, actually, are you aware of any uh, regulatory kind of constraints on on anything like this? Not so much constraints. I I know they're using it for um, so there's there's several implementations of this. Probably the most uh, important of which is the U.S. Census. So the the idea is that the Census Bureau will collect data that is you know 100% accurate. And then when people ask for the data, they'll obfuscate it in this way where you have minimum privacy loss. Oh, interesting. Uh, and the nice thing about the nice thing about differential privacy is you can quantify it using, you know, it's very rigorous mathematics, um, how much privacy is being lost. And then if someone asks too many questions, you can just say, like, 
I can't answer any more questions or I'm going to disclose um, personal information or like I could potentially disclose this. Um, there are issues with this implementation that people um, have been discussing. So what the, what the Census Bureau has done is they've released um, the 2010 census data with differential privacy and people have done some analysis and gone, well, you seem to like very much bias small communities. Um, so, so for example, if you look at a town and you ask it what its population is, and you know that in the previous implementation, it was like 510. And then this differential privacy um, implementation tells you it's like 700. Well, that's, that's a pretty big yeah. difference for a small town. And, you know, there's going to be, there's going to be problems. Uh, and the Census Bureau is just going to have to work out a way to, to deal with that. Um, but they're very much like pioneering differential privacy for, a, uh, for like a government use case. So it'll be interesting to see how they how they handle it. And the way that they're doing it, there's there's two types of differential privacy. There's central and uh, there's local. So global versus local. And they're using global differential privacy, where there's like a central repository. So they are the arbiters of the of the data. And that that might bother some people because you know they have access to all this sensitive information. Um, but the nice thing is that they're legally mandated to to protect your privacy. They're not allowed to give the data to like the FBI or any other go government agency that asks um, them for it, and they have to pledge to never like reveal data. So, um, you know, your data is pretty safe with the Census Bureau. And then companies, when they implement it, they typically use local differential privacy. So this is where your phone, um, the noise is built into your phone. So when you send data to Apple. Uh, your iPhone, it's going to kind of add the noise before it gets to the database. So they never have the true data. They just have this obfuscated data. So if they get subpoenaed, um, you know, and you have, there's compromising information about you, there's some sort of deniability there yeah. because of this noise that's been created. That's actually really interesting in terms of the, the, yeah, that difference between the, um, the distributed, the decentralized, and the centralized approach um, sort of mirrors, I mean, in, in a very loose way, the um, the cryptocurrency uh, debates that we've been seeing unfold around things like more centralized uh, cryptocurrency. It's sort of cool how how much overlap there is here with cryptography. I guess it is a kind of cryptography um, that uh, that goes into this privacy stuff too. Well, yeah, Matt, thanks so much for for making the time. If people want to follow you, I, I know you're very active on LinkedIn. You got a lot of of blog posting going on. Um, or do you have a Twitter handle as well that people could follow? Uh, yeah, I think it's Matthew P. Stewart. Matthew P. Stewart, great. And is there anywhere else that uh, people could follow as well where you're particularly active? Uh, no, I, I try to stay off most uh, social media these days, apart from the uh, like LinkedIn, Twitter, Medium. Yeah. A very wise man. Okay, <laughs> that makes perfect sense. I should I should probably follow in your footsteps there, uh, as should we all. Well, thanks so much for making the time, Matt. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for having me.